You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 6, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. With the Green New Deal now a hot topic in the U.S. Congress, while wholesale power markets still struggle to figure out how to accommodate new kinds of resources, even as coal plants and nuclear plants continue to retire, the question of how wholesale power markets should work and how they should value new kinds of assets and services is becoming increasingly urgent. What would a power market look like if it consisted mainly or completely of wind and solar, with their zero marginal cost power? And if we continue to use out-of-market payments to keep clean but uneconomic nuclear plants operating, what will be the effect on power markets? Will power markets ultimately crash under the weight of accumulated patches and workarounds, or can their design be adapted to new social priorities, like combating climate change, and new kinds of resources, like large-scale storage systems? Can we replace the market construct of locational marginal pricing with something more suited to the new reality of grid power? What kinds of policies can keep us on track to support transition and facilitate the evolution of the fuel and technology mix toward a high renewables future? Will FERC Order 841 succeed in opening the doors to storage on the grid? Are real-time prices the future of rate design? And as we move toward a deeply decarbonized grid, what are the implications for our economic system? These interesting and challenging questions are the kinds of things that fascinate our guest in this episode. Pete Fuller has worked with power producers, major utilities, and wholesale market operators for over 30 years, both in engineering and planning roles. He has witnessed the evolution of power markets through several major changes already, and has thought deeply about what the future holds for them, so it's a privilege to have him share his perspective on the show. Grid geeks are going to love this one. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about Germany's new plan to phase out its coal power. We'll update the data on the advance of renewables and the decline of coal in Europe. We'll reconsider the destiny of California's largest utility. We'll review the performance of various kinds of generators during the January polar vortex in the U.S. And as a bookend to that story, we'll see how various generators fared on the Australian grid at the same time as it endured record heat. But first, our conversation with Pete Fuller, recorded January 29th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Pete, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. You know, we're going to talk about some pretty geeky electricity market design stuff today. But before we dive in, I think it might be helpful to our listeners if you could just briefly explain a bit about your background. I mean, you spent over three decades in the energy industry in which you held roles in engineering and power supply planning for Eastern Utilities Associates. You represented independent power producers, Mirant and NRG and the ISO New England, New York ISO and PJM stakeholder processes. And you held 
held leadership positions in the New England Power Pool, the New England Power Generators Association, and the Independent Power Producers of New York. So you've you've definitely been around the block on utility markets and utility procurement. Yeah, and first of all, thanks very much, Chris, for the opportunity to be here. I'm thrilled to be a part of your podcast, which I have been listening to and find real fascinating. Awesome. So going all the way back and giving you a brief overview of what I've been doing, you know, when I came out of college in the 80s, I was very invested and very interested in renewable energy, solar in particular, energy efficient buildings and so forth. I joined Eastern Utilities because a small company, they had some really innovative ideas. Ultimately, while there, I got slotted into doing planning and found that kind of simulation work was really fascinating. So I kind of took a turn away from the renewable side of things, but did a lot of very basic planning and evaluation of how distribution systems work, how they interact with transmission systems, worked on some really cool stuff, integrated resource planning, which I know now is a bit of a toxic topic in a lot of places, but at the time it was really fresh And we did some really interesting analysis about trading off societal objectives or externalities along with our traditional planning. And so I think we were really on the early stages of trying to bring those other factors into play. Ultimately, there at EUA, I got involved in the restructuring efforts in the New England region and power plant sales and stranded costs and how you take care of customers after the utility no longer is in the business of generating the power and so forth. So really got a front row seat to what the transition was all about. And when the opportunity came up to move into the independent power space with what the company that became Mirant jumped on that one. And really, you know, that was sort of the kickstart to the career that got to see an awful lot about different way of thinking about energy, of thinking about the business, looking for growth, looking for a lot of innovation that while we were doing really interesting stuff at the utility, there was a whole different mindset of what innovation was all about and what was possible in the independent power world. And then when the opportunity came up to join David Crane's team at NRG, you know, that just boosted it into overdrive. David really had some amazing visions and I think built a really terrific company. Very changed now with his departure, but still a fantastic opportunity there and did a lot of work, you know, all the way from the traditional power plants to home solar, to fuel cells, to a major role, frankly, in the New York Rev process because we were very interested in where that market was going to go and grid modernization overall. So I really have had a lot of fun looking at all these things and really being on the cutting edge. And again, ties back to your themes here of energy transition. And so I'm thrilled to be with you today to talk about it. Nice. Yeah. Well, then you were into grid integration of renewables way before it was cool, like in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So just to set the stage for this discussion, let's talk for a moment about some of the trends that you're seeing in the industry and markets. I mean, to begin with, we've seen flat to declining load growth across nearly all parts of the utility industry in the U.S. for over a decade straight now. So why do you think that is and how has that affected utility business models and investor appetite for utilities? So I think that is one of the most important 
trends or situations we find ourselves with as we think about transition. Clearly, the state efforts on energy efficiency have been very successful. Upstream standards, appliance standards, and so forth have been very effective at reducing the energy use, increasing the efficiency of all of our appliances, gadgets, what have you. So that's been a major factor. The recession obviously took a big bite out of energy use a few years ago, and I don't think we've recovered from that. But overall, I believe it's mostly the efficiency. We're doing more with less now, and I think that's the new normal. I think it really creates an additional challenge for this idea of energy transition and moving to cleaner, more efficient sources of energy, because we're not in that situation we were in for several decades where you could plan on growth in usage year over year, growth in peak year over year. You knew it was always on an upward trend in the late 20th century. That's not necessarily the case anymore. And so the organic incentive for utilities to be adding to their portfolios for investors to try to build to a market demand is far less strong and evident in this trend of flat load than it has been before. So I think that's a critical one that really underlies all this conversation and the challenges we're having around state actions versus markets versus contracts and so forth. And I think it really sets the backdrop for the overall conversation. Yeah, I mean, the lack of load growth is certainly changing the way the utilities go about investing in new supply. I mean, if you don't have any load growth, you don't really need any additional supply. So at best, you need to replace assets that are retiring, like coal plants. But it can also be a challenge here to align the private interests of utility shareholders with the public good of retiring dirty coal plants and reducing emissions, right? Absolutely. And I think... Again, this is because of the load growth and the difficulty for investors to be looking at it in the market parts of the country. This is highlighted even more because where you have traditional utilities, where you you still have the traditional utility regulatory model, it's quite possible for utilities to build in to their procurements all these various attributes that they're looking for beyond just cost. It's far more difficult in the market parts of the country, which is really kind of the mindset that I bring to the discussion here. It's harder in those areas to build in the societal objectives, the environmental objectives, if they can't be reduced to a monetary measure. Mm. And so... Which is the role that the social cost of carbon was intended to play, but that's out of favor in the current administration at the very least. Exactly, exactly. Whether it's carbon, I mean, there are impacts that we've seen from, you know, knocks and socks and the things that actually have value in the monetary system. Carbon has been a huge challenge. And until we really find a way to monetize that, I'm afraid we're we're going to be struggling with this, bringing additional objectives, primarily carbon and greenhouse gases and so forth, into the energy conversation. And if you don't do it cleanly with a price, we're going to get kludgy results. 
You know, I think a person who's maybe new to this topic of utility procurement might reasonably wonder at this point, okay, so they can't keep adding new coal plants or conventional assets to the portfolios. Why can't they just equally add efficiency and DERs, distributed energy resources and renewables to their portfolios and still continue to get paid on those rate-based investments just as easily? Well, and I think, again, the traditional utility model at least makes that an option for a number of companies. And it largely depends on the political environment or the regulatory leadership in those states. Where you have a market, you know, that becomes a much more difficult challenge. The RTOs really are built on the idea that the market will supply what you're looking for. And without clear line of sight to how you monetize those things other than through a utility rate base, it's very difficult to make that happen. Right. Okay. So this is where market valuations of these new assets is really the crux of the biscuit, as it were. So let's talk about that. I mean, as energy transition proceeds on the grid, we're gradually moving away from the old paradigm of dispatching supply to meet whatever demand is at any given moment to almost the inverse, to dispatching and controlling demand to absorb variable supplies of clean power from solar and wind whenever they're producing. And, you know, we're also procuring increasingly flexible supply assets, such as storage systems, as well as communication systems that allow grid operators to see the operations of all these new system elements and control systems that allow operators to ramp up both supply and demand up and down. So the transition is leading us to a much more optimized grid with a lot less fat in it, but the speed of transition is still being limited by the presence of the older and flexible generators, which would have to be retired in order to make room for the newer flexible resources. Is that a fair characterization of sort of where we're at now? I think so. And again, if we had organic load growth going on, I think it would happen much more naturally. People would be looking at building new stuff to meet the new demand, which would have the effect of generally being a little bit oversized and doing more to push out the existing stuff. You touched on a point here, Chris, that I meant to mention back in the trends question, which I think is key really to this one. Okay, It's the data and communications overlay that I think we're seeing, but I think still has a long way to go to be fully realized in the energy space. The idea that with a cell phone, you can control all the devices in your house, that concept generalized to the broader system really suggests that the traditional utility setup or the traditional system operator setup and I've never worked in one directly, but I've been in a number of control rooms over the years. And they've got information about what's happening out in the world, but it's pretty limited in terms of its scope. You get power readings and so forth. If you think about expanding that to full visibility of all devices eventually, or at least all meter points, and having a certain degree of control beyond those meter points, whether you bring that all together into one supercomputer or have some other mechanism for decentralized computing of all that stuff, the fact is we're moving to a stage where all of that stuff can be integrated somehow into the system and into the controls and visibility so that 
as you said, it's a much more digital world we're moving into. I think that's absolutely true. And all of those elements that play a role in the consumption and supply and balancing of those two things today can be much more actively managed going forward. And I think that's the kernel of a really important truth here in terms of where systems are going. This is not your father's utility system anymore. We're moving into a much more interactive and integrated system. And as we've discussed in several recent episodes, flexibility itself is it's not really an asset, but it's certainly a thing that we need to procure as we're moving into this new grid paradigm. Totally agree. And that's one of the things that I think is part of the answer, as I think we'll talk about the concept of energy and producing the next increment of energy may not be our real basis of our economic system going forward in energy systems. And it may come down to something more like flexibility or the ability to respond in the next increment. That may become our basic currency, if you will. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So let's move on and talk about markets because that's obviously where the rubber meets the road here. For decades, as we've said, we've dispatched generation to meet load according to whichever resources were economic at the time. And that's been the foundation of electric grid operations and wholesale markets forever. The locational marginal price, or LMP, of energy has formed the basis of both operational dispatch and market valuation and settlements. But as the grid decarbonizes and traditional generators are replaced with these wind and solar and other energy sources with low or zero marginal costs, the LMP construct sort of falls apart, doesn't it? So, I mean, what good is a zero price informing the market? So as we move further into energy transition on the grid, what can replace LMP as the basis for scheduling and dispatch and as the basis for paying energy producers for their production? I sincerely wish that I had the answer for you right here. <laughs> that would be ideal. Although, as a good consultant, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But honestly, I wish I had the answer, Chris. But I think the value of our conversation here and many that I've been having over the last few years is to raise this question. Because mm. we can't continue blithely along and assume that LMP and the economic dispatch that we've done in various parts of the country for you know over 100 years or at least for the last few decades that paradigm is i think necessarily going to evolve its way out and ultimately fall away if you go to the system that i think we're going to end up with and i don't know whether this is one two three four decades out but and a lot of credit on this thinking and this kernel of an idea goes to my colleagues at NRG, we worked on this a lot, hmm. is we thought of it as a four-part energy system. The bulk of your energy, the kilowatt hours, the megawatt hours, will be coming from wind, solar, other renewables, other sources that effectively have no input cost for the energy. Obviously, there's capital cost, but there's no marginal input of energy. So that's the bulk of your energy production. You add on to that storage as a component, as a large element, grid connected, presumably, as well as distributed. You add on what we talked about a minute ago, uh, pervasive control and visibility of demand, be it you know electric vehicles that are plugged in, be it your water heater, what have you. All of that stuff plays some role in, again, managing and balancing. And then you've got a little bit of 
probably gas, but some form of really dispatchable, controllable generation at the margin to manage all of that. When you get down to a system like that, what you're really talking about when you think about traditional marginal cost functions, it's only when you're dispatching those peakers, if you will, at the end in presumably rare situations. Most of the time, you're taking wind and solar and you're either sending it directly to consumers or you're harvesting it into storage somehow for later use. And in that concept, the basic ideas of a merit order dispatch are out the window. So it's really hard to get my mind around, but I think that's the question we have to really struggle with. If we were starting today with a brand new clean sheet of paper, we didn't have the electrical system we have, we didn't have a century or more of history leading to this, and we had the technologies that are in front of us, the renewables, the storage, the demand control, the communications, what would we do? Yeah. And I think that's the question I try to wrestle with, not because I think we can do that, but I think it provides a lot of insights into how we ought to proceed. You know, we asked that very question back in episode 24, one titled Starting Over. Like, if we had to start over, how would we do it? I don't think we came to any interesting answers, particularly in that episode, but we tried. <laughs> it's a tough question. I'm not sure there is an answer. <laughs> well, you know, something that just occurred to me is that if this whole concept of economic dispatch and economic optimization for the grid is starting to, I don't know, become obsolete, then that really calls into question the value of all of our forecasts and models about what the composition of the future grid looks like, because those are economic optimization models. Well, I think that's an interesting effect or impact of this. If you believe my concept of the transition and where we're ultimately going, you know, that is one of the things we need to back our way into is, okay, how do we structure that future market? But then, like you say, how do we evaluate it from here? How do we think about what the economics are going to look like, what the impacts are going to be, who's going to bear the costs, who's going to bear the risks? All of those things sort of fall out of what the economic system and the economic way we organize the system what that's going to be in the future should be informing how we evaluate our path to the future. And that's why, again, why I kind of try to think about that clean sheet. What would it look like? And again, I wish I had an answer today. You know, in the back of my mind right now, I imagine a whole crowd of blockchain boosters, you know, eagerly waving their hands in the air going, blockchain, blockchain, that's the answer to this problem. I don't know. I have little doubt that blockchain plays a role, but it's interesting you bring that up. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show.
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As we anticipated in episode 83, Germany's coal commission has finally issued its decision that Germany should shut down all of its coal-fired power plants by 2038 at the latest and pay at least 40 billion euros in aid to the affected coal mining states to help them transition their economies to a future without coal. This approach is similar to that being used in Spain to shut down its coal-fired power plants, only at a much larger scale. The deal will allow Germany to meet the EU's 2 degrees C emissions goal for 2030. But according to an analysis by Carbon Brief, a German coal exit by 2038 could result in cumulative emissions of around 1.3 billion tons of CO2 over the below 2C pathway. Predictably, environmentalists called the phase-out plan unambitious and slow, while RWE, Germany's largest electricity producer, said the deadline was much too soon. In the first tranche of retirements, about 13 gigawatts of capacity will be retired by 2022, with reviews of those measures and other planned reductions every three years thereafter. And importantly, the Commission said that it approved of preserving the forest in Hambach, which protesters had protected against further expansion of RWE's lignite mine, and where a court had already halted operations. The plan would put Germany on a path to relying on renewables for 65 to 80 percent of the country's power by 2040. Last year, renewables surpassed coal in Germany as the leading source of electricity at 41 percent. Item 2. Electricity from renewables hit 32% last year in the European Union, an increase of two points over 2017, according to a new report. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.